You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to wrap up the story of British mountaineer George Mallory and the assault on Everest. A couple of quick notes. First, a shout out to the patrons of our show. I very much appreciate your support. Special huge thank you to our Trailblazer and Navigator patrons, Dave, Eileen, John Paul, Chris, Roger, and Philip. It is people like you that make this show possible, so thank you very much. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, just go to explorerspodcast.com for more details. Depending on the level of support, you can get such things as ad-free episodes and exclusive mini-episodes. It's all part of a very nice little community of fans, so go check it out. Second note, if becoming a patron of the show isn't feasible for you at this point in your life, but you want to show your support, go to wherever you get your podcasts, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and give the show a nice review. All that stuff really does help out. So again, thank you very much. And that is it for notes. Let's get rolling. Part 4 of George Mallory and the Assault on Everest Last time, we left the 1924 British Mount Everest expedition staring into the face of defeat. Two attempts, neither using oxygen, had been made on the summit and both had been stymied. On the second attempt, Edward Norton had reached an altitude of 28,120 feet, or 8,570 meters, a world record. But neither Norton or his partner, Howard Somerville, could go any higher. Men were simply not made to breathe air at the top of the world. Even before the second assault team had returned from their attempt, George Mallory was preparing for a third go at the summit. He went down the mountain and organized the transportation of oxygen gear up to Camp 4 on the North Call in preparation for the next climb. For his partner, Mallory would pass on Noah O'Dell, an experienced climber who was not a fan of using oxygen, and instead selected Andrew Sandy Irvin, a novice mountaineer. Irvin, despite his inexperience, had two things going for him. First, he was young and fit. Mallory said he was strong as an ox. And second, he was a mechanical genius. Nobody understood the workings of the oxygen apparatus, which was often touchy and unreliable, better than Irvin. Mallory wanted that expertise on the mountain. So let us start out by talking about Sandy Irvin, so you understand how this man, with virtually no climbing experience, was thrust into such a prominent position. Sandy Irvin had been born in England in 1902. He had a brilliant mechanical mind. As a teenager, he caught the attention of the British War Office by sending them a design for synchronization gear that allowed a machine gun to fire from a propeller-driven airplane through the propeller without damaging the blades. Again, he did this when he was only 15 or 16 years old, which is really extraordinary. 
Irvin would attend Oxford and excel in academics, but the young man also proved to be an outstanding sportsman. He was lean and athletic, and he would become a champion rower while at Oxford. In 1923, Irvin would take part in the Merton College Arctic Expedition to Spitsbergen, which is an island north of Norway bordering the Arctic Ocean. He would do outstanding work and catch the eye of another expedition member, Noel O'Dell. O'Dell was a climber on the 1924 Everest Expedition, and he suggested that Irvin be invited. Irvin's innovative mind and technical abilities could contribute in many ways, including looking after the oxygen equipment. Plus, Irvin had all the makings of a great climber. He was keenly intelligent, athletic, and strong. Also, let's remember that there was a lack of young climbers due to the war, and getting men like Irvin involved in the sport would be a great addition. And another thing, with regards to his youth, Irvin was called an experiment by the men of the expedition. Most of the team members were in their 30s and 40s, and there was interest in seeing how a younger man such as Irvin would react to the high-altitude environment. Ultimately, Irvin would prove to be an excellent addition to the team. He worked hard to hone his climbing skills, all the while putting to use his engineering talents. He would repair and improve equipment, such as the stoves and cameras, and he provided good ideas and insight to challenges the expedition faced. I mentioned last time how he cobbled together a rope ladder, which he installed on an ice cliff. This made a difficult section of the climb to the North Call safer and quicker. But the thing we most remember Irvin for is the oxygen. And with that, let us talk a bit about the English air, as it was called by the porters. As we have mentioned in the past, oxygen was a source of controversy due to the perception that it was unsportsmanlike to use it on a climb. Plus, it was clunky and unreliable. Most of the members of the expedition, including Mallory, wanted to conquer Everest without it. Thus, in the build-up to the recent attempts on the summit, it was Irvin who essentially saw to the care and maintenance of the stuff. The unreliability of the gear was the biggest problem. On the previous expedition, Jeffrey Bruce had had his oxygen supply fail at more than 27,000 feet, or 8,230 meters. I mean, no one wanted that sort of thing to happen in the middle of the most important climb of their lives. It made everyone wary of relying on it. Now regarding the oxygen, the expedition would bring 90 cylinders of the stuff. However, 15 were found to be empty, while 24 were leaking. That more than 40% of the cylinders were unusable did not win any converts to its cause. On the positive side, the oxygen cylinders had been improved on what they had brought in 1922. You only needed three canisters instead of four to have eight hours of air. This meant a slightly lighter load and less maintenance, both positives. Also, Irvin did his own adjustments, making the entire apparatus lighter, stronger, and more efficient. One way he did this was by flipping the canisters on the metal frame. This shortened the length of the tube that ran from the canister to the person's mouth, making the oxygen flow more efficient. This was another of Irvin's simple yet ingenious improvements. So with all of that in mind, let's get to the actual attempt on the summit. As noted, Mallory would select Irvin as his climbing partner for this next attempt. Some people have questioned the selection of Irvin, who was woefully inexperienced. He had never been above 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters, in his life, and now he was expected to go another 6,000 feet, or 1,830 meters, to the tallest spot in the world. That sounds incredibly risky. But most people believe that Mallory valued Irvin's skills with the oxygen gear more than Odell's experience as a climber. And besides, it's not like Irvin had to blaze the trail, he would simply be following Mallory's lead. Also, we should remember that Mallory and Irvin had become good friends, and Mallory felt that the young man had the physical and mental traits, as well as the temperament, to accomplish the task at hand. Now, Irvin could have said no to this opportunity, but he was not that kind of person. He was a competitor at heart, and he had hoped for a chance to climb Everest. 
Plus, he wasn't going to let down the team, and more importantly, Mallory. I mean, the greatest climber in the world expresses his confidence in you, and it's kind of hard to turn him down, even if you have your doubts. I do want to mention that Irvin was not a big proponent of using oxygen, like George Finch had been on the previous expedition. Irvin had simply taken on the role of maintaining it because he was the best person to do so. On June 3, 1924, Mallory and Irvin would go from Camp 3 to 4 on the North Call, which is at 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters. At this point, the assault by Norton and Somerville was still underway. Mallory figured he would be there to welcome those men after a successful climb, or in his estimation, make another go at the summit. By the way, going up to the North Call, Mallory and Irvin would use oxygen for the first time. They would do this section of the climb in a record-breaking 2.5 hours, the benefits of the supplemental air clearly evident. Norton and Somerville would return on the night of June 4th, defeated. Somerville was physically drained, and Norton was snowblind. The two would be escorted down the mountain the next day. But before departing, Norton would accept Mallory's plan, although he had misgivings about Irvin's inclusion. Meanwhile, Mallory and Irvin would prepare for another try at the summit. On Friday, June 6th, Noel Odell would make the team a breakfast of fried sardines, biscuits, and hot chocolate. Odell would take a photo of the two men getting ready to depart at 8.40 a.m., the last known photos of Mallory and Irvin. The climber wore windproof jackets and pants, goggles, woolly scarves, mittens, and cashmere puttees, which are leggings that go from the ankle to the knee. Mallory wore an Air Force helmet, flaps turned up, while Irvin had a brimmed hat. The two would carry oxygen for the climb as well as spare clothing and food. Their loads were close to 30 pounds, or 13 kilos. Eight Sherpas would accompany the climbers, carrying additional oxygen canisters, tents, sleeping bags, fuel, stoves, and other supplies. The Sherpas did not use oxygen. Noel O'Dell and John DeVar's Hazard would be up on the North Call and provide support for the assault team. The day was a perfect morning for a climb, and spirits were high. Now, I want to stress that going forward, what we know about Mallory's and Irvin's actions are due to some written communications plus the reports from the porters that accompanied them. The team would make good time that day and reach Camp 5 at 7,700 meters, or 25,260 feet. Here, four of the porters would be sent back down the mountain, delivering a note from Mallory that said, quote, There is no wind here, and things look hopeful. End quote. Well, so far, so good. Mallory and Urban would spend the night at Camp 5 and push on to Camp 6 the next day, which was at approximately 26,700 feet, or 8,140 meters. Here, Mallory and Irvin would spend the night while the remaining porters would head back down the mountain. That same morning, June 7th, from Camp 4, Noel O'Dell would head up to Camp 5. It was here that he met the four porters who had accompanied Mallory up to Camp 6. They told O'Dell that the two climbers were in good shape and planned to depart the next morning. They also brought with them a note from Mallory. It said, quote, Dear O'Dell, we're awfully sorry to have left things in such a mess. Our Una cooker, which was their portable stove, rolled down the slope at the last moment. Be sure of getting back to four tomorrow in time to evacuate before dark, as I hope to. In the tent I have left a compass. For Lord's sake, rescue it. We are without. To here on 90 atmospheres for two days, so we'll probably go on two cylinders, but it's a bloody load for climbing. Perfect weather for the job. Yours ever, G. Mallory. End quote. There would also be a second message, which read, quote, Dear Noel, we'll probably start early tomorrow to have clear weather. It won't be too early to start looking out for us either crossing the rock band under the pyramid or going up skyline at 8 p.m. Yours ever, G. Mallory. End quote. A couple of notes here. One, Mallory accidentally said 8 p.m. instead of 8 a.m., which is not a big deal. 
Two, he addressed people by their last names, which can be confusing. The first note was for Noel O'Dell, the climber. The second was for John Noel, the filmmaker. For the latter, Mallory had early discussed where to be watching for them on their ascent, in case he could film any of it. Otherwise, this was all good news. Well, aside from losing their portable stove. Mallory said they were going to go up on two canisters of air. Remember, the oxygen apparatus allowed them to carry up to three canisters. By going with only two, the climbers would have around five to five and a half hours of air to reach the summit, but their loads would be lighter. As a note, the climbers could lower the airflow of the oxygen. This would give them more time, but it would mean the oxygen was less effective. Upon getting this news, Odell settled in at Camp 5 for the night, but the next day he would begin to trek up toward Camp 6. But it is here that we probably need to stop for a bit, because we will have no further communications from Mallory or Irvin, and the only sighting of them is going to be a source of controversy. But before we go into that, I want to talk about what lay ahead for Mallory. To understand what happened to him and Irvin, we really need to know what obstacles were in their path. And I've purposely not discussed this in the previous episodes, as I wanted to sort of reveal to you each situation at the same time the climbers encountered it. But going forward, we can only speculate, and thus I think giving you a bit of an understanding of what lay ahead is important. So here you go. Coming from the north side of Everest, a climber needs to follow the north ridge up the mountain from the north call. The north ridge merges with the northeast ridge, which goes to the summit. Along the way, a climber must get over three prominent rocky steps on the northeast ridge. These are the famed three steps. These steps are located, respectively, at altitudes of 8,564 meters, or 28,097 feet, 8,610 meters, or 28,250 feet, and 8,710 meters, or 28,580 feet. I have put a link on the website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see all of this. The first step consists of many large boulders and is very dangerous to negotiate. Many people have died here over the years. The second step is the most famous of the steps and had been spied by the climbers from lower on the mountain. The step is about 40 meters high or 130 feet. In the last 15 feet or so, or 5 meters, is almost vertical. There is no way around this. You must climb it. This second step is without question the most difficult part of the climb. The third step is only about 10 meters, 30 feet, and not considered too difficult. After the third step, the last obstacle is the summit pyramid. This is the steep upper part of the summit that crowns the mountain. So I hope that gives you a bit of an understanding as to what lay ahead for Mallory and Irvin. Please know that they could have tried some other routes, but this is the most likely, and it is what we will focus on. And with that, I'm going to jump back to June 8, 1924, at 12.50 in the afternoon. The weather had been good that morning, but now there were mists on the mountain, and banks of snow clouds were heading towards Everest, an ominous sign. On the mountain, as he headed up to Camp 6 at approximately 8,170 meters, or 26,800 feet, Noah Aldell would look up the slopes and the mists would clear for about five minutes. It was there that he reported that he saw a tiny black dot moving briskly on a small snow crest beneath a rock step on the ridge. A second black dot was moving toward the first one. The first dot reached the crest of the ridge, but Odell was uncertain if the second dot had done so as well. Based on this report, it appeared that Mallory and Irvin had just reached the base of the difficult second step. Now, a few major things here. One, this is the last purported sighting of Mallory and Irvin alive. Two, if they had indeed reached the second step, they were hours behind schedule. To get to the summit and back down, they needed to have gotten to this point hours ago. They would have to still climb up nearly 800 feet over the second and third steps and up the summit pyramid, and then they would still have to get down. And this leads us to our third item, 
and that is the accuracy of Odell's report. Many people doubt that Odell saw the men at the spot he had, and some doubt that Odell saw Mallory and Irvin at all. Let's explain both of these points. First, there's the debate of what Odell actually had seen. He had said that there were black dots moving on the snow. Well, were those dots actually Mallory and Irvin? Some argue that at that distance, there's little chance you would actually have seen the movement of men, especially moving briskly, as Odell noted. Typically, climbing speed is slow, and very slow in these circumstances. From that distance, it's questionable that the movement of a person would actually be noticeable by the human eye. Perhaps it was a bird. They do fly at these altitudes. Or the more likely thing was a trick of the eye. This was not an uncommon phenomenon. A person sees some dark object, usually a rock, and due to the swirling mists and snows, it appears as if the rock has moved. And let's not forget that this sighting was just a fleeting moment, the skies clearing for Odell just for a few minutes. Second point, if Odell did see the climbers, where exactly had he seen them? Had they just climbed the first step and were moving on to the second? Or had he seen them on the second step and they were moving on to the third? Unfortunately, Odell's answer is sort of confusing, and his attempts to clear things up over the years only muddied things even more. I don't want to go into all the nuances of what Odell reported, but I want to add that it's unlikely he saw them on the second step moving to the third step. One reason for this is the difficulty, which we will discuss in a minute. But the other reason is that there's little chance they scaled the extremely difficult second step in the time that he viewed them, about five minutes. Odell described seeing the men moving briskly, which is not how a person would conclude the second step. It would have been an immensely slow process. So, Odell's report aside, you're probably asking what happened to Mallory and Irvin. Well, be patient, time will reveal some clues. But for now, I want to address the other question that so many people have asked over the last century. Did Mallory and Irvin reach the summit? And the answer to that is no. Well, almost assuredly no, but we can't be 100% sure. Let me explain. I'll start by saying that there's almost no way that Mallory and Irvin could have reached the summit and headed back down the mountain in the time that they gave themselves. The truth is that early Everest climbers badly underestimated how long it takes to go from Camp 6 to the summit and back. In fact, the exact route that Mallory wanted to take was not accomplished in a single day until 1990, and the guy who did that knew the specific route and challenges ahead of him, unlike Mallory. You need to have a camp higher up, and you need to depart way earlier in the morning. Even today, climbers will leave for the summit of Everest at midnight using headlamps just to give them enough time to reach the top and get back down. It's that difficult. The big issue that faced Mallory and Irvin was the second step. This is not something a climber can just knock off in a few minutes. The final 15-foot, or 5-meter, section is a sheer wall of rock. It is incredibly hard to scale. The first successful climb of the second step was done in 1960 by some Chinese mountaineers. It would take them three hours just to figure out how to conquer this second step. This 15-foot vertical section is so difficult, a ladder has been installed at the spot. I also want to note that it's questionable that Mallory, even if he could have made it to this point, would have been able to actually climb the final 5-meter vertical section. Modern climbers have rated the difficulty of that climb, and it's generally considered beyond Mallory's capabilities, or right at the edge of it. And let's not forget, Mallory would have been incredibly tired and insanely cold. And then there was the oxygen. Mallory had said he was taking only two canisters, maybe five or six hours worth of air. But by this point, it may have been gone, and thus trying to get up to the top of the mountain would have been nearly impossible without the air. Now, perhaps he ended up taking a third canister, but we just don't know. In the end, it just seems unlikely that Mallory would have been able to reach the summit of Everest. Even if he had reached the second step, to have tried to climb that vertical 15-foot section would have been borderline insanity. 
Thus, the likely answer is that the two men went as far as they deemed possible, perhaps to the first step, maybe even beyond, but they eventually turned around. So with that in mind, we go back to the big question, what happened to Mallory and Irvin? For that, let's head back to the mountain. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Noah Odell would eventually reach Camp 6 at about 2 p.m., just as a nasty and sudden blizzard hit the mountain. Odell took refuge in the camp's single tent for a short while, but he would eventually venture out, despite the storm. He continued to climb higher, whistling and yodeling to alert Mallory and Irvin in case they had gotten lost on their way down the mountain. As the cold and wind and snow grew worse, Odell would abandon his ascent and retreat to the tent to weather the squall. By the way, Odell reported that the small tent was strewn with pieces of oxygen gear. This was probably Irvin tinkering with all the equipment, trying to make sure that they had the very best setup for the climb. Some people have speculated that it meant that there was an issue with the oxygen, but we just don't know that answer. At 4.30 p.m., the storms would pass, and there would be no sign of the climbers. As there was not enough room for three men in the tent, Odell headed back down the mountain, leaving Mallory's compass in the tent. Odell would reach Camp 4 on the North Call at 6.45 that evening. Now they could only wait and pray. The next morning, there was still hope. Perhaps Mallory and Irvin had been forced to spend the night at Camps 5 or 6, delayed by the blizzard and the darkness. But as the morning gave way to the afternoon, dread set in. Odell would set out back up the slopes with two reluctant Sherpas. Fighting nasty winds, they would reach Camp 5 at 3.30 p.m. There was no sign of Mallory or Irvin. The three men would spend a cold night at Camp 5, and the next morning the two porters were sent back down the mountain, while Odell would keep going up. Odell would eventually reach Camp 6 and find things undisturbed. Mallory and Irvin had not been there. He went out searching, but it was an impossible task. It was a vast and dangerous area. Visibility was low and the winds were strong. Odell would make it up to about 28,000 feet, or 8,535 meters, before halting his search. He would then retreat to Camp 6 and pull out the sleeping bags and blankets that Mallory and Irvin had used. With them, he would create a cross on the snow, a signal for the men at Camp 4. 4,000 feet below, or 1,220 meters, John DeVar's hazard would see the signal, which meant no trace can be found, given up hope, awaiting orders. Hazard would relay the message to base camp, and eventually a reply would come back. No further searching. Evacuate the mountain. Upon getting the news, Odell would gather up Mallory's compass and begin his descent. The attempt to climb Everest was over. As the expedition wrapped up its business, everyone would hope for a miracle, but they all knew it wasn't going to happen. Norton would say this of the team, quote, We were a sad little party. From the first we accepted the loss of our comrades, in the rational spirit which all of our generation had learnt in the Great War, and there was never a tendency to a morbid harping on the irrevocable. But the tragedy was very near. Our friends' vacant tents and vacant places at the table were a constant reminder to us of what the atmosphere of the camp would have been had things gone differently. End quote. 
In the camp, gear was packed up and readied for shipping, and each man had a medical exam. Before departing, the expedition members would build a cairn of stones with the names of all the men who had died on the past three expeditions, including Mallory and Irvin. A coded cable would be sent back on June 11th with news of the two men. It would arrive in London on June 19th and broke in the papers on the 21st. Sadly, Mallory's wife, Ruth, would hear the news from the press. The expedition would eventually pull up stakes and head back to India, saying their goodbyes to the local people, including the Lama at Rongbuk Monastery. And so that ends the 1924 British Mount Everest expedition. But the end of the climb does not end our story. We really have three chunks of stuff to talk about to wrap up this series. The first will be the mysteries and clues about Mallory and Irvin's disappearance, including the discovery of Mallory's body in 1999. Second, we'll do a rundown of some of the people in this story, as a lot of them led some fascinating lives. And finally, we'll wrap up with a little discussion about Mallory and his legacy. And with that, let's go. Back in June 1924, word would spread around the world about the deaths of Mallory and Irvin. Praise and honors would pour in for the two. They had been brave and steadfast men who had risked their lives for the greater glory of God, king, and country, and their fellow human beings. As you can imagine, there were a lot of questions about what had gone wrong and so forth, but the truth of the matter is that mountaineering is an inherently dangerous affair, and climbing near the top of the world even more so. One wrong step, one poor decision, heck, just one moment of bad luck, and it could end in tragedy. In the wake of the expedition, the members had nothing but praise for Mallory and Irvin. Some insisted they would have gotten to the top, but that was wishful thinking. At the time, none of these people knew what lay before the climbers on that last stretch of the mountain. So there would be all sorts of speculation as to what happened, and if the two men had reached the summit. But the first real clue would not appear until 1933, when another expedition, led by Hugh Rutledge, would come to Everest, following in the footsteps of Mallory. It was there that the expedition would find, at an altitude of 27,400 feet, or 8,350 meters, an ice axe. The axe was found approximately 750 feet, 230 meters, east of the first step, and 60 feet, 18 meters, below the northeast ridge. The axe was initially believed to be Mallory's, but was later identified as Irvin's. The big question, what did it mean? Well, while we're never going to be 100% sure of anything, this, or someplace just above it, was likely the spot where Mallory and Irvin fell. There are a couple reasons for this conclusion. One, the area the axe was found features a 30-degree slab of rocks with loose pebbles. Add in fresh snow and stiff winds, and it would have been problematic. And second, an axe is a climber's most important tool, and neither man would have left it there on purpose or even by mistake. Thus, the location was likely where it was dropped. Hugh Rutledge, the leader of the 1933 expedition, came to this conclusion about the scene. Quote, It seems probable that the axe marked the scene of a fatal accident. For reasons already given, neither climber would likely have abandoned it deliberately on the slabs. Its presence there seemed to indicate that it was accidentally dropped when a slip occurred or that its owner put it down in order to have both hands free to hold the rope. End quote. I want to note that the 1933 team retrieved the axe and left one of their own to mark the spot. However, the axe that they left would disappear, and thus the exact spot of where Irvin's axe was found is a little fuzzy. Now, the next clues to the fate of Mallory and Irvin would not come for decades. In 1975, a Chinese climber reported finding an English dead at about 27,000 feet or 8,230 meters. He made the assessment based on the clothing the body was wearing. Was this Mallory or Irvin? Well, sadly, that climber would be killed shortly thereafter in an avalanche, and the body he discovered has never been found. Let's jump forward to 1999. It was then that a rusty oxygen cylinder 
identified as one from Mallory's climb, was discovered just below the first step. The cylinder had been stashed into a cranny and not dropped. This proved that Mallory had climbed to at least as high as the first step. Also, it demonstrated that the oxygen system was working effectively even at this height. But the big discovery was about to come. On May 1st, 1999, American mountaineer Conrad Anker, who was climbing with Mallory in the Irvine Research Expedition, was out looking for bodies on Everest. He had found two that day, but those were from more recent deaths. And then, at an altitude of 26,768 feet, or 8,159 meters, he would come to a place that was a natural basin for catching stuff that fell down the mountain. It was here that he would see something, saying, quote, All of a sudden, a patch of white, different from the snow and bright as marble, caught my eye. As I got closer, I realized it was a person. End quote. The body was lying face down on the slope, arms outstretched, as if the man had been trying to stop his slide. A severed rope was around the waist. He had on a tattered wool sweater and a cotton wind jacket. The right leg had been broken above the ankle, and there were other signs of trauma. Upon examination, Mallory's name tag was found on the clothing, plus there was a monogrammed handkerchief with Mallory's initials. There was no question, this was the body of George Mallory, found 75 years after his disappearance. On the body, the team would find some snow goggles, a pocket knife, an altitude meter, and some letters wrapped in a scarf. The letters were from Mallory's brother and sister. There was no camera, something many had hoped to find. Also, there was no photo of Mallory's wife, Ruth. Mallory had brought one with him, his intention to put it on the summit of Everest. So what had happened? Well, the body displayed severe rope jerk modeling around the waist, indicating that Mallory and Irvin had been roped together when one of them fell. The rope had snapped or been severed in the fall. Also, there was a large puncture wound on Mallory's forehead. This likely would have happened when Mallory, as he slid down the slope, tried to use his ice axe to stop or slow his fall. It would have been a desperate attempt. Anyhow, the axe probably hit a rock as it tried to bite into the ice and rebounded hard and struck Mallory in the forehead. This and the other injuries are consistent with a sliding fall. I've read some speculation that Mallory could have survived the fall and then died at the bottom, but if he had survived, it's unlikely he would have been conscious after the fall and the severe head injury. No matter, this was the spot that George Mallory would come to rest at and die. As for Sandy Irvin, well, his body has never been found. Perhaps it was buried by the snow, or it slid further down the mountain. We just don't know. Someday, perhaps, but for now, it is a mystery. So what was learned by all of this? Well, the likely cause of the men's death was that one of them fell, dragging the other down the slope with him. Who fell and why, we don't know. Going down the mountain in the dark, with fresh snow on the ground and with stiff winds, all it would have taken was one wrong step, one bad decision, or even a simple bit of bad luck. But it does make one wonder about having the inexperienced Irvin on the climb rather than Odell. As a note, Odell had had health issues much of May, as he had struggled to adapt to the high altitude of Everest. But acclimating often takes four, five, six weeks, and once Odell hit early June, he was incredibly robust. He would ultimately spend 12 straight days at more than 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters, and climb up to 28,000 feet, or 8,535 meters. Thus, it again leads to speculation as to what might have happened if it had been Odell, and not Irvin, on the final climb with Mallory. But that's just speculation, and unfair to Irvin, who contributed to the climb in ways Odell could not. So with that all said, here are a few comments about what was found, and not found, on Mallory's body. First, none of the oxygen gear was found, so the best guess is that Mallory and Irvin were coming down the mountain, the oxygen used up, and the apparatus discarded. Second, Mallory's goggles were in his pocket. 
as we have seen, you need to wear those goggles or risk going snow blind. Well, there may be two reasons they were in his pocket, the simplest being that it was dark and the glasses were not needed at that point. And the other thing, from photos we have, it appears that Mallory kept two pairs of goggles with him, so he could have been wearing one when he fell, and they were just lost in the fall. The goggles in his pockets were a spare. Third comment, where was the photo of Ruth Mallory? We know where her husband had intended to leave one on the summit. Well, to be honest, we just don't know about this. This is only speculation, but maybe Mallory left it at the highest spot he had reached, knowing that he wasn't going to get to Everest Summit. Again, we just don't know that answer. The missing photo has led some to speculate that Mallory did reach the summit and left the photo there as he intended, but again, I find that unlikely. Fourth comment, there was no camera on Mallory. This was a great disappointment. Mallory had carried with him one of the portable Kodak cameras, and experts from the Kodak company said that if the camera was found, there was a possibility they could retrieve whatever photos had been taken. Of course, the Romantics want to think that it would reveal shots of Mallory and Irvin standing atop Everest, the first men to reach the summit. But who knows, maybe someday it will be found, and we will find some answers. So that basically gets us to the end of this amazing story. Not that we don't have some things to discuss before finishing up today. But I would argue that George Mallory and Sandy Irvin got up to the area of the first step, maybe even to the second step, but would not have had the time or capabilities to get past the vertical wall that marked its end. Thus, they would have headed back down the mountain. On the way down, just below the first step, perhaps in the dark, one of the men slipped. Irvin dropped his axe, and the two men went down the mountain several hundred feet. They would likely have died from the fall. And that is my take. So with that, I want to move on and do a quick rundown as to the fates of some of the people and places that have been part of this story. Let's start with some of the key members of the three expeditions, in no particular order. The first person I'll mention is Edward Norton, who had led the 1924 expedition upon the departure of General Bruce. His climb to 8,570 meters, or 28,120 feet, was a world altitude record which stood for nearly 30 years and was only surpassed during the Swiss expedition of 1952. After the 1924 expedition, Norton would return to the military and serve in various places in Asia, including that of Governor and Commander-in-Chief of Hong Kong. He would retire from the military in 1942 after an accident and go on to advise the 1953 expedition that would eventually conquer Everest. He would die in 1954. Howard Somerville, one of the key climbers of the 1922 and 1924 expeditions, would, after seeing the poverty and appalling conditions of the hospitals in India, spend most of his life there as a surgeon. For his humanitarian and scientific work, Somerville was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 1953. He retired in 1961 and returned to England. He would serve as the president of the Alpine Club for three years. An accomplished artist, Somerville would leave thousands of paintings and sketches, many depicting the Himalayas. He would die in 1975 at the age of 85. Our next man is George Ingle Finch, the climber who had been a proponent of oxygen use on the 1922 expedition. Finch would maintain a lifelong interest in climbing and would eventually become the president of the Alpine Club. He would go on to be a distinguished chemistry and physics professor and be elected as a fellow of the Royal Society in 1938. In 1944, he was awarded the Hughes Medal, which is given in recognition of an original discovery in the physical sciences, particularly electricity and magnetism or their applications. He would die in 1970 at the age of 82. Next up is Jeffrey Bruce, who had climbed with Finch in 1922 and Mallory in 1924. Bruce would have a long and distinguished career in the British Army, rising to the rank of Major General. He would die in 1972 at the age of 75. 
Speaking of Jeffrey Bruce, there was his older cousin, General Charles Bruce, who had led the 1922 expedition and the 1924 expedition until a flare-up of malaria had sent him back to India. Charles Bruce had lived a long and colorful life and would stay in India after the expedition. At one point, he would serve as an honorary officer of the Royal Gurkha Rifles in the Indian Army. He would die of a stroke in 1939 at the age of 73. Another climber from 1924 was Noel Odell. In 1936, Odell would climb to the top of Nada Devi, which at the time was the highest mountain ever climbed. Outside of mountaineering, Odell would have a long career all over the world as a geologist and professor. He would die in 1987 at the age of 96. Another man on both the 1922 and 1924 expeditions was filmmaker John Noel. Noel would make a movie about the 1924 expedition called Epic of Everest, which has survived to this day, as has his 1922 film. After the Everest expeditions, he would not make any more movies and instead wrote and lectured about his Himalayan experiences for much of his life. He died in 1989 at the age of 99. Next, there is Henry Morshead, who was on the first two expeditions. Morshead would return to the army in Asia, but was murdered in 1931 during a rebellion in Burma at the age of 48. Sadly, two of Morshead's sons would die in World War II. Now, aside from Mallory's family, which we'll discuss in a moment, that wraps up all the people in our story, but there are a couple of other groups and places that I want to mention. The first is the Rongbuk Monastery, at the base of the north side of Mount Everest. Well, the monastery would almost be completely destroyed by 1974 in China's Cultural Revolution. The monastery's vast collection of books and artifacts would be carried away to Nepal, but most would be destroyed in a fire in 1989. Renovations of the monastery began in the 1980s, and it has made a comeback. Today it houses between 30 and 60 Buddhist monks and nuns. The next item I want to mention is about the Sherpa and Nepalese people who were so important to our story. While the Himalayas were about to change their lives in many dramatic ways, the world was changing and interest in the Himalayas would rapidly grow. Now, the World War II years aside, the Sherpas in particular would become the backbone of the climbing industry in the Himalayas. They would be recognized as the finest mountain porters in the world, and just as important, they would start to come into their own as climbers. In our series, the Sherpas were mostly support team members. They were porters who learned to climb, but in the coming decades, Sherpas and other local people would start to emerge as climbers as well. The most famous of these will be Tenzing Norgay, who will be one of the first men to eventually climb Everest. In our next series, we'll talk a lot more about the Sherpas when we tackle the story of Norgay and Edmund Hillary. Now, the last people I want to talk about are George Mallory's family. He had left a wife and three young children back in England, and they were, as you can imagine, devastated by his death. Ruth Malley would ultimately recover from her loss and raise three successful and independent children. She would remarry in 1939, but would die in 1942 at the age of 50 of cancer. Regarding Mallory's children, his daughter Frances would marry an American scientist, Glenn Milliken, and have three children. Sadly, her husband would die in a climbing accident in 1947. Their son, Richard, became a respected mountain climber in the 1960s and 70s. She would die in 2001 at the age of 85. The second daughter, Barrage, or Barry as she was called, would get married, become a doctor, and have three children. Unfortunately, Barry would die of cancer in 1953 at the young age of 35. The last of the children was John Mallory. He would emigrate to South Africa and work as an engineer. He would get married and have five children. In 1995, John Mallory, along with his son, named George after his grandfather, traveled to the base camp at Everest, where they would place a plaque honoring their pioneering ancestor. George Mallory would then climb to the summit of Everest, where he would leave a photo of his grandparents, 
completing what his grandfather had begun so many years earlier. By the way, John Mallory is, as of the recording of this episode, December 2020, still alive at the age of 100. And that is a rundown of the people and places in this series. Now, before we finish, I want to just take a few minutes and talk about the legacy of George Mallory and the Everest expeditions. First, while these expeditions had not accomplished their goal of climbing the mountain, they had pulled the veil back on Everest and learned so much. They had learned what was the best time of year to make a summit attempt, and where to make camps on the mountain. They had learned an incredible amount about the need to acclimate to the high altitude, and they knew their clothing needed to be better and the oxygen gear more efficient. They also had learned about the value of the local people, and how important the elite tiger porters were to any expedition. All of this stuff, and more, would be invaluable going forward. As for George Mallory, I want to stress that Mallory wasn't perfect. He was often viewed as moody and impatient with lesser people, which in climbing was just about everyone. His decision to climb with Sandy Irvin was a risky one, and you can only hope that Mallory never pushed the young man beyond his capabilities, considering how dangerous of a situation they were in. But in the end, Mallory is beloved and respected in the climbing world, and the work he did in the Himalayas was pioneering. Over the years, Mallory and Irvin have been honored in many ways. Two peaks in the Sierra Nevada mountain range are called Mount Mallory and Mount Irvin. At Oxford, where Irvin studied, a memorial stone was erected in his memory. At Magdalen College in Cambridge, where Mallory went to school, one of the courts was renamed for him. Those are just a few of the many things. There have been many books and documentaries about the expeditions, as well as the subsequent searches for Mallory and Irvin's bodies. It also means that there are lots of different points of view and interpretations of the events we have discussed, and I mean a lot. Just know that I have tried to tell this story as accurately as possible with the information available to me. If you are interested in other books and media, please check out the website, explorerspodcast.com, as I have put some links to some of these things for you to enjoy. And feel free to do some internet searches on the subject. You will find a lot of material. And finally, regarding movies on our subject, there have been numerous attempts to make a film about Mallory and the Everest climbs, but nothing has ever come to fruition. But who knows? Let's just hope that if they do make one, it is done well. I will finish up by saying this about the star of our series, and that is that George Mallory is not just a legend in the mountaineering community. He is the legend. He is the man that put high-altitude climbing on the map, and what he did and tried to do has inspired climbers to this day. Mallory's life and death represent so much about why climbers love to climb. It is the thrill of the journey, the burning desire to push oneself to the next level, the euphoria of accomplishment. It's all of that, plus the knowledge that one must have focus and passion and skill to not just succeed, but to live to see another day. With that always in play, it makes the journeys and accomplishments all the more satisfying. And thus, the life and death of George Mallory has left an indelible mark on the climbing world. That is a pretty amazing thing for a person who died nearly a century ago. And so that is it, George Mallory and the Assault on Everest. I hope you've enjoyed this series. And with the conclusion, I want to announce that our next series will be Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay and the Conquest of Everest. I decided to do this because the star of these shows is, in reality, the mountain itself, the Great Chomulangma. And to tell that story with only Mallory's attempts, well, it's just not fair. We need to take this tale to its conclusion, which is what we will do. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you in the new year. I wish you a safe and happy and healthy 2021. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. 
It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.